0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Hello, internet! Hello, world! I'm really excited to be with you guys. I'm so excited to be with Naomi. My name's My name's Johanna Hari. I feel I should explain that cough is not coronavirus. I'm a British writer. I've written several books. My most recent is called Lost Connections. I'm so excited tonight. You know. We're talking at a time when the world is on fire in so many ways. It is is physically on fire with wildfires in so many places. It's on fire with a cry for justice. It's on fire with the destruction of our democracies, the potential destruction of our democracies. And there is no one better to talk about that with tonight than Naomi Klein, my friend. Um, So, to be a sense of Naomi, I'm sure you all know who she is. But, you know, Naomi is someone who Greta Thunberg said is one of the great inspirations for the young people all over the world who are rising up to demand action on the climate crisis. She's the person who Bernie Sanders said has been consistently way ahead of the curve. She's the person the Pope invited to be the first atheist and it's due to co-launch an encyclical at the Vatican. I was slightly worried when that happened that she would lose interest in her friends who had less than a billion religious followers, but she stuck around. Um, So I'm so happy to introduce Naomi Klein. Hi, Naomi.
2: Hi, Johan. Thank you so much for doing this. It's great to see you. And I'm hearing a
1: slight, I don't know if anyone's hearing that, I'm hearing a slight uh, distorting sound. I don't know if one of the mics is still live. It's not your mic, Naomi, I don't know. Anyway, it's not a big deal if they can't deal with it. Um, so tonight, we're going to talk about a few different things. I'm just going to say a quick housekeeping thing, which is obviously we're speaking through the Haymarket feed. This is one of many events Haymarket is doing. On Tuesday, October the 13th, Astra Connolla, Naomi's friend, and Angela Davis, the legend, will be doing an event. On Wednesday the 14th, Harvey Lewis, Naomi's fabulous husband and a wonderful, wise human being, will be doing an event about LEAP, which is something we'll have to be talking about. I'm
2: hearing a loud scratching sound. Are you hearing it, Naomi? Yeah, I just put head uh, headset in to see whether that would help. Is it helping? Perfect. Okay. cool. See the kind of
1: solutions-minded, pragmatic person you are. Um, But tonight we're going to be talking. We're going to be focusing particularly on on two of Naomi's books. No is not enough, which was written at the at the start of the Trump years. And you know, I often think about Naomi as a kind of if people who've seen minority report you know Samantha Morton the character who's the kind of creature in the vat who can see the future because Naomi's books have been consistently so prophetic from no logo the shock doctrine this changes everything um and 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 no is not enough it's profoundly prophetic book about what was coming in the in the trump years and what we've been about space, and her most recent book on fire um so there's loads of things for us to talk about but i wanted to start naomi by asking about so in the last few days, Donald Trump has emerged from hospital. He's told us to not be afraid of the virus, and I've been thinking a lot about something you wrote about really presciently in No Is Not Enough. About you, you argue that the the rights relationship to global warming is different to the one a lot of people think it is. A lot of people think that they're denialists. You argue that they're not denialists. I'm interested in the relationship between that and COVID denial. So could you just explain a little bit of your your argument about Global warming denial on the right, and then how it applies to the current crisis.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So obviously, there are hardcore climate change deniers who genuinely believe um, that you know what we're seeing now is um, you know a natural cycle, sunspots. um, But in truth, that is a a small and shrinking minority. What I think is much stronger on the far right side of the political spectrum is people who are well aware that it is happening, but who believe that admitting that it is happening would be utterly shattering to their worldview, to their ideological project, their worldview and even their wealth. Right. So they're highly motivated to uh, not admit what it is that they know. Right. And, you know, the it, it, climate change is getting harder and harder to deny. Right. I mean, I'm speaking to you from the West Coast, which has been on fire for well over a month. We've been breathing in wildfire smoke. Um, you know, a, a, a new super hurricane is headed uh, uh, for the Gulf Coast. It's currently pounding um, Cancun. So, there's only so many unprecedented, <laughs> historic, record-breaking events that one can live through and still deny the reality that uh, we are warming the world. Uh, but, you know, so I think that there's a couple of things to understand about what is going on in the far right. Um one, you know, I, I, I explore in a chapter in *On Fire* called "The Right Is Right," um, which was based on some reporting I did at the Heartland, uh, the Heartland Institute's annual climate change denier confab. Um, you know, the Heartland Institute, which is really ground zero for for climate change denial, they are a um, a, a right wing think tank. They are a, a quote unquote free market think tank, which is important because they are not primarily geared towards scientific issues at all. They're a group of far-right economists who have been arguing for a very long time for deregulation, privatization, austerity, the whole package of free market policies. Um, and and when I interviewed the head of the, the Heartland Institute, a uh, man named Joseph Bast, he said to me that as he um, read about climate change, he realized that if it was true, it would be license to engage in any kind of regulation that liberals wanted. And so he said to me, and so I took another look at the science. So he was very open that he was motivated to question the science, because if the science was true, I mean, if indeed, um, you know, um, business as usual, industrial activity was threatening the habitability of the planet, then you would have to intervene in the market. So if you are a right, wing think tank whose entire reason for being is to push for deregulation, climate change is a problem for you, right? Um, So I think that that is a big, big factor. When I said that the right is right, I didn't mean that they are right about climate change. But I think for a long time, they understood the implications of climate change more than many centrist liberals who would acknowledge that the science is real, but then tell us that we could fix it with a little, a minor, you know, cap and trade, you know, a bit of market magic. Don't worry about it; you, you'll barely notice a thing, right? Um, so there's a liberal kind of, of soft climate denial that I was trying to get at with that. Um, but if there's something else too that you notice when you're hanging out with climate change deniers, which is that they. They think it's all kind of funny, uh, you know. And I noticed yeah, there were there they, at the Heartland Institute there was there were a lot of jokes about thousands of people, for instance, dying in heat waves um, in France. You know, there was one speaker talked about, you know, and after that they discovered air conditioning, right? And this was sort of the tenor of the whole thing, which and it and it and it really struck me that it's not that they deny the science, it's that they think they're gonna be okay. That they believe that their wealth and perhaps other ways in which they see themselves as superior will protect them from the worst impacts of this crisis that they're publicly denying. And I think that this is particularly clear with Trump himself, you know, who's talked about climate change as a hoax. And, um, you know, he, he's had to he, you know, he he knows that climate change is real because Mar-a-Lago is threatened by climate change. Many of his golf courses are threatened by climate change. As a developer, he knows that it is real. He feels safe in denying it because he believes that his wealth will provide some kind of insurance. And and this has been very much on my mind, watching him this week um, shrug off a virus that has killed more than 200,000 people in the United States in large part, thanks to the, you know, utter negligence, recklessness, ineptitude, murderous ineptitude of his policies Coming out of the hospital and saying I dominated this virus, right? And don't let it dominate you, as if this is some kind of test of your personal strength. And Johan, this is something you and I, you know, have talked about when when um, when I was writing. No, it's not enough. And you kindly helped me a lot with that book, and uh, that. That Trump talks a lot about his genes. This has been an obsession of his. Um, he talks about having good genes, and this is something his father talked a lot about. Um, and I think that there's a sense that there's uh, that that wealth some kind of uh, um, genetic superiority that they believe they have. I think this is all mixed in with white supremacy and this idea that the people who do get sick from this virus or who are impacted by climate change essentially deserve their fate because whether because they're poor, whether because they're weaker, um, you know, it's an intense kind of social Darwinism tinged with eugenics um, that I think connects both climate change denial and COVID denial. Um, On the far right. And what I worry about, I mean, I worry about a lot of things, but that that these figures have participated in the creation of such an apartheid state um, uh, where the, the, the wealthy live such completely different lives and have access to so much greater protections, whether from the impacts of climate change or the impacts of illness, <clears throat> that it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Um, so, you know, Trump, Trump has access to gold plated medical care. Everybody who works for him has access to that. And so their, um, their experiences of COVID will be wildly different than the experiences of um, Black and Brown people in New York City who went to public hospitals where the ratio of nurses to patients was 14 to one, when good COVID treatment calls for it to be one to one, right? Um, so so they will tell themselves that they dominated COVID because of their superiority. And this will only reinforce this supremacist thinking that I think is at the core of these crises. That,
1: that's so fascinating, because in a way, that's a particularly dystopian expression of the pattern of his whole life. You know, Molly Ivins said about George W. Bush, he was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. And there's that effect with, with Trump where, <clears throat> exactly as you say, he will now believe, oh, this proved my strength. In fact, where with him, the ratio was 30 doctors to yeah. him. Right? Okay. So, so that that's interesting. And it seems to me, it, thinking about this in relation to some of your earlier work, this is an evolution. There's certainly a lot of continuities with earlier forms of the right, but this seems to me an evolution in, or a regression in kind of right-wing rhetoric. If you think about Friedrich von Hayek or Milton Friedman, people you've rightly been very critical of in the past, they at least had a rhetoric and that it was dishonest. They, they were monsters. But there was a rhetorical claim, oh, if our system prevails, everyone will be better off, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't true. It was imposed through violence, you know, through the dictatorships they supported in lots of places. But it's interesting to see with, with Trump, in a sense, there isn't even an attempt to have a universalist kind of morality, right? There's, it's, it's like a Nietzschean or Ayn Randian, not that he would even know who Nietzsche or Ayn Rand were, but Nietzschean or Ayn Randian worldview where actually, well, if you're one of the losers, I'm not here to talk to you and your death is... Irrelevant to me. Does that seem right to you that that, that, that kind of evolution in, in thought that's happening?
2: <clears throat> or devolution. I mean, I think that you know it's 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 always worth worth remembering that Trump's favorite president is Andrew Jackson, who's a genocidal killer. Um, and that um, obviously that's a bit redundant, genocidal killer. Um, but you know, I raise this because I think that the metabolizing of Plague, a virus, as a kind of a test of, su- of of kind of a divine superiority or manifest destiny, it runs very deep in the genocidal project of settler colonialism in the in the Americas. Um, I'll read you a quote from um, Governor John Winthrop in 1634, Governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. For the natives in these parts, God hath so pursued them. As for 300 miles space, the greatest part of them are swept away by the smallpox, which still continues among them. So as God hath thereby cleared our title to this place. So hath God cleared our title to this place. So God is is narrativized, as basically working for the colonists by giving Indigenous people smallpox that they survived. Um, Betsy DeVos comes from a place called Holland, Michigan, um, which is a kind of it's a it's a sort of mini fundamentalist Holland. It has a big annual um, tulip festival. Um, you know, before the Dutch settlers came to Holland, Mexico, uh, to 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 uh, Holland, Michigan, there were indigenous people living there, and they were pushed off the land in part by smallpox, um, but also by raids on their on their on their settlement. Um, but the story that gets told is that it was just smallpox, and so um, yeah, I mean, it is a it is a devolution. It is a return to the kind of fundamentals, if you will, of a project um, that Cedric Robinson calls racial capitalism. And I think that that formulation, you know, much debated these days, but I think it is a really, really important concept for us to understand. Right? Is that in the ear that it, from its earliest days, modern capitalism has required the white supremacy and all of these racial hierarchies as a justification for barbarism. Um, if you are going to steal land from indigenous people, you have to have a story about how they are just genetically weaker and therefore God wiped them out and gifted you their land. Right. And that is the story of a huge part of settler colonialism. Um, and you, it, the, the 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 barbarism of the transatlantic slave trade had to be justified with this ranking of of of, of human life with white supremacy. So these projects are intimately intertwined It happened been since the beginning. And so, you know, what I argue in On Fire is that the reason why we are seeing a surge of supremacist logics. You know, and I say supremacist logics not not only white supremacy, because, it, it, it you know, in India, it's Hindu supremacy. It's manifesting in different ways in different parts of the world. In Israel, it is Jewish supremacy. Um, but we are seeing these different supremacist forces and worldviews um, surging and reasserting themselves around the world at this time of. Um, of ecological crisis, of, of 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 different system breakdowns, where um, you you have to ha- you know if 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 millions of people are on the move and forced to move their home from, from their homelands, whether because of the economic system you've imposed on their countries, or because of the wars you have you have inflicted and waged or unfunded or because of ecological crisis from your emissions or some toxic cocktail of all three, right? Um, if you're not going to have justice in the face of that, which would mean opening your borders, having some kinds of rep- reparations, then you need a story that allows the justification of letting people die in the desert or die in the Mediterranean um, or or in offshore camps off of Australia. So what's the story? The story has to be a supremacist story that rationalizes mass death. And so um, that's why I think we are seeing this very powerful return to the supremacist logics that were kind of baked into capitalism from the start. Does that make sense?
1: Totally, and I think that's one of the most powerful parts of On Fire, and I was thinking about that it might sound like a strange thing to say, but I was thinking about it when Boris Johnson got infected and when Jair Bolsonaro got infected, because you can, I think in those moments, I could be wrong. I'm really interested to think about this. It seemed to me instinctively, you realized how much they had internalized their own sense of supremacy, that Boris Johnson could literally boast. Well, when I go to the COVID wards, I shake everyone's hand. And I remember when he said that, I turned to my friend Alex and I said, but, but doesn't that mean Boris Johnson will get COVID? It's a, it's an infectious disease isn't that what we're not meant to do and and similarly bolsonaro is saying you know the poor are weak then they're, they're like little girls again misogyny as well um, that they've internalized they, they at some very basic level they really don't think they are people like us is that does that ring true to
2: you Yes. I mean, but this is where it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. I think vast inequality is tremendously morally corrupting, right. In that, in that, that you know, if you're going to live in a society as, as grotesquely unequal as ours, right. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos needs a story for why he needs 26 bathrooms in just one of his homes and the workers at his Amazon warehouses um, don't even get told when there is a COVID outbreak. He needs a story. And that story can really only be that he is a much better person than all of them combined. Um, And so. Massive inequality, and we have been becoming a more and more unequal society steadily, um, you know, over the decades of the neoliberal period, um, requires all of these various corrupting rationales, right? Including this kind of Ubermenschian rationale of like, if we're rich, you know, if, if you if you are among the super rich, it's because you are just that much smarter and that much better and that much stronger, um, because why else would you deserve, you know, eight homes and three yachts and, and you know, in a, in a world with so much need? Um, and and so I think that 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 sort of corrupting way of thinking does lead the Trumps and the Bolsonaro's and, 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 and the Johnson's to think that they would be immune to this highly infectious virus, which, of course, they're not. And they all got it. But here's the catch: because we do live in a kind of class apartheid, which is extremely racialized as well, um, they do have access to so much better care um, than everybody else. That 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 they do have a much better chance of beating this virus. Um, that and they then metabolize their healing as proof of their superiority, and that's that's the moment that that's the kind of frightening moment that I feel we're in right now with Trump.
1: That's so fascinating. It reminds me of this psychology experiment. <clears throat> it's a few years since I've read it, so I might get some of the details wrong, but I'll get the essence of it right, which is you, you get a load of people to play Monopoly. And at the very beginning, you say to everyone, we're going to give Naomi, uh, three times more money at the start than the person she's playing against, right? She's completely open. You say, we're rigging the game in favor of Naomi. And they play the game and of course, Naomi wins most of the time. And then you say, Naomi, are you better at playing Monopoly than the other person? And you always go, yes, right? (laughs) You knew the game was rigged in your favor. Yeah, yeah. The other person also thinks you were better at playing Monopoly when you do that, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing the game is rigged doesn't um, necessarily mean that we then um, adopt a justice-based mentality. I was interested thinking about that in relation to, you've been arguing, I think persuasively, that Trump oh, is also yeah. internalizing another aspect of this. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
2: Oh, well, well I was just going to say that Trump has even taken it further where... The fact that he rigs the game and doesn't play his ta- his doesn't pay his taxes and and right. and um, you know that like as he said, you know in twenty sixteen that just means I'm smart right. Um, but you were going to ask were you, uh, about something else, I think. That's
1: fascinating and and really important in that kind of Berlusconi effect where mm. you, it's seen your parasitism and um, contempt for the game is seen as admirable, not not uh, not. Contemptible, But I was thinking about what you've been saying as well about evangelicals. And <clears throat> I think a lot of people in our world aren't quite aware of the evangelical narrative that has built up around Trump that you, you argue has mm. actually persuaded Trump himself. Could you just talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, and I should say there are lots of different kinds of evangelicals and they don't all support Trump by any means. Um, but there is you know, a rise of this Christian nationalist um, uh, uh you know, very powerful force within the Trump administration. And yeah, I think that there is this narrative out there that Trump is playing the evangelicals because we all know that he used to be pro-choice and he's this philanderer and, you know, uh, sleeps with porn stars, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of a joke of an evangelical heroic figure. And so he must be um, just kind of playing them as dupes. And I, 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 I don't think that that's the case. I actually believe that they have convinced Trump that he is indeed sort of the Lord's instrument. And there is this whole story about how, how God is, you know, uh, sneakily disguising his instrument in the form of this s- sinner, uh, uh, Donald Trump. Um, but actually he is there to do God's work, you know, before the end times. And, um you know it's a messianic narrative for Donald Trump and 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 I just from from what little I know about about um about narcissistic personalities, I can't imagine how somebody would explain to you, you know, if you had multiple religious figures explaining to you that despite all of your sins, you are actually doing God's work um, and are, are, you know, and God is working through you through and and it's all been a kind of a clever disguise and you are absolved of all of that sin. And in fact, you are a kind of a messiah What narcissist wouldn't go for that story? (laughs) And so I think in the same way that Trump has convinced himself of all kinds of delusional things, uh, I believe that he, sure, I think he thinks he's the messiah. I mean, all narcissists on some level think they're the messiah, but they don't usually have, you know, like (laughs) battalions of like (laughs) priests (laughs) telling him that actually (laughs) he really is. So. Um, yeah, and, but I think that the more worrying piece, or the very worrying piece, of you know the power of 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 um, of, of forces who believe that we are in the end times, um, that we are on the verge of a kind of a rapture where people um, who have been devout who've prayed to the right God are going to be lifted up to a g- gated community in the sky and everybody else is going to all the sinners are going to get what they deserve. Um, what's worrying about the force of that narrative and how many people close to the president of the United States believe it um, is that it also is a narrative that rationalizes all of this suffering, right? Like all the things that we're seeing, you know, these, these 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 the pandemics, those the this the superstorms, the fires, the floods, all of it. This is like these are items on an apocalyptic checklist, right? Um so while you and I might look at this and go, like, oh my God, we need bold climate action, we need to challenge, you know, market logics, um, we need a fundamentally different kind of economy um and society. They're going check, 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 check. Hey, look, it's almost time, and I'm saved. Um, so um, that's worrying as well <laughs> um, awesome. when it when it reaches power at that level. But it's not just it's not just um, it's not just Trump. I mean, these figures are very close to Bolsonaro in Brazil, very close to Scott Morrison in Australia. Um, you know, he's you know quite a significant figure in the Pentecostal Church. Um, you know, they don't talk about it very much, but this is a narrative. That you know, and once you believe that you are God's instrument, then not listening to election results or tampering with elections, you know, that's a that that is a minor sin if the broader goal is creating you know the kingdom of God on earth.
1: Right. That reminds me of I don't know if I've ever told you this, Naomi, years ago when I was a baby journalist. I went on the Christian Coalition Solidarity Tour of Israel. Um, It must be on the internet somewhere. And it was fascinating. It was a group of Christian evangelicals So we went to Megiddo, where the apocalypse begins in the Book of Revelations, and and it was fascinating to see that they literally believed this would happen in their in their lifetimes, and were constantly interpreting current affairs and world events through that right. prison in a way that is seems to us like magical thinking, and is, is very deep in that in that um, way of talking. I just I want to go well, into. Mean, different- this,
2: this has been very present for a while, but I think that I think we can agree now. You know, it's hard to have a conversation about current events where somebody doesn't invoke the apocalypse (laughs) that it's sort of feeling that way. Right. Um, So if you're already in that story, you can see how the world would be giving you all kinds of sort of reinforcing signs.
1: So I want to come back to the question of. Apocalypse thinking and the problems with it on our side as, as well as theirs in a little, little while. But just before we go on to a different subject, that you, you, just to stay with COVID, one more thing: you, you talk in this really beautiful way in something you wrote recently about the relationship between vulnerability and solidarity. So we've been talking about these people who believe they are invulnerable, right? Mm, what what mm, that relationship?
2: Um. Yeah, I I think you're you're talking about the essay that I wrote, Years of Repair, um yeah. to accompany this the, the film by the same name. And I was actually quoting Eddie Glaude Jr. Um he was talking on one of these Haymarket seminars um with um with Cornell West and 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 And, um, Eddie was, was, was used this phrase that, that I found really resonant, um, a solidarity and vulnerability, uh, as this, something that was going on in the COVID moment that obviously not everybody is feeling it as we've been discussing. Um, but I have been struck, you know, that, you know, I think it's useful to think about the moment that we're in as a kind of moment of revelation, as a kind of unveiling and, um, I think the way I've been thinking about COVID has been really shaped by time I spent in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, where a lot of people talked about Maria as an unveiling um, or as a teacher, um, as a crisis that sort of pulled back the curtain and revealed all the other crises that had been ignored before. Um, and, And so if we think about COVID in that way, I mean, one of the things that I was just first struck by um living in the US I've been living in the US for the past couple of years actually for the first time since I was a kid I've you know been living in Canada up till till then and I've been um teaching at Rutgers for the past few years and 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 living living in the US for the first time as an adult and that that's quite an experience has, you know, coming from a country that has universal health care, that takes certain things for granted in terms of labor law that just can't be taken for granted in the United States. Um, uh, like that people can afford to go to a doctor um, and so on. And so as soon as COVID hit, um, I was so struck by the way it forces forced everybody to think about other people in a way that that capitalism often allows us not to right because you know every like if you if you if you go to a restaurant and get something to eat you have to think about whether the people who um you know who who made that food uh had to go to work despite being sick um, because they wouldn't have gotten um, paid time off and because they couldn't afford to go to the doctor, right? Um, so, you know, in the little film that we made, uh, Years of Repair, uh, that was um, co written by Opal, Opal Tometi and Avi Lewis and, 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 and illustrated by the brilliant Molly Crabapple, mm-hmm. we have this um, passage that talks about hands, right? That in the early days of the pandemic, we all became so acutely aware of our hands, washing our hands, but also thinking about everybody else's hands and all the hands that had touched everything that we were touching and all the hands that were taking care of the people we couldn't care for. And, you know, I think that, you know, ever since I wrote No Logo, which is really about, you know, this the, the, the lengthening of the global supply chains in the production of the stuff that populates our lives and how capitalism is so good at hiding away, you know, the sweatshops and the, you know, the people who do the labor to make our shiny things. Um, we, w- you know, it's kind of unbearable to think about all of the labor that goes into making a comfortable life in the West. Um, but co- and this is why I think it is useful to think about COVID as this unveiling because the virus has found all of the places where people's labor is being abused and where people are being treated as they, as if they are of less value than the goods they make. You hear, heard that again and again, you know, in the meatpacking plants, in the Amazon warehouses, um, you know, in the in 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 the migrant worker. Uh, um, fields and then the bunkhouses that people were being treated again and again as if their lives were worth less than the products that they were that they were producing um, uh, or the animals that they were processing um, and these are the places where the disease has, the virus has spread, right? Wherever people are being kind of locked into these inhuman scale workplaces and being treated in really degrading ways. And of course, in prisons and in, and in detention facilities and in, you know, elder care facilities where our elders are being treated as refuse, right? Um, the virus has found those places of of abuse with sort of laser-like accuracy. But at the same time, it has, because it is so contagious and and revealed our porousness, I think there is a potential there, as as Eddie was saying, um, to build on that solidarity and vulnerability. And, um, And I think that that the murder of George Floyd coming in the, in, in the midst of that. And I think that that's what Eddie was talking about, that there was a kind of a softness because of COVID and also because of the slowing down of life from the velocity of capitalism, that when that horrific racist murder happened, there was a way in which that solidarity just kind of surged up
1: I love the way you put that. And there's a great line in the the film as well, where you say, you know, the virus showed us what was really important. And I thought one of the, both, there's both the the, the negative lesson of all the things we had devalued, all the people, oh, more importantly, yeah. the people we had devalued. But there was also, wasn't there that, <clears throat> that positive, um, positive lesson you say, you know, no one missed shopping in this crisis. Right. And who did we value? Uh, <clears throat> I've been trying to think of a language to kind of talk about this over the last few years, as you know, because you really helped me with it. And uh, in a way, I think just like we all know junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. You know, we've been taught that life is about money and status and power. Donald Trump is obviously the most extreme epitome of, of that value system, and actually there's a lot of evidence from people like Professor Tim Kasser, whose work I know you um, know, that actually makes you feel profoundly miserable. The more, yeah. more your life is dominated by junk values, the more likely you are to be depressed, the more likely you are to be anxious, for all sorts of reasons that we we, we can go into later if you like. but. This was a real moment when the kind of mask of junk values was pulled away, right? Who did we need and who did we not need in this crisis, right? We did not need the... Billionaires, the Wall Street bankers, the Instagram influencers, none of those people were yeah. out of their house. Sorry, we didn't need them at all. Who did we need? Actually, it was the kind of jobs that my all my family did. You know, it was bus drivers. That was my dad's job. It was um, nurses. That was my mother's job. It was people who cleaned toilets. That was my grandmother's job. It was, it was actually uh, an Angela Merkel uh, who's flawed in many ways, but talked really interestingly about this in her address to the German people. You know, these people who've been devalued for so long. Did, did you see it as that, as a moment of revealing... Uh, our dysfunctional values as well as uh, some of our crimes and, and n- moments uh, spaces of neglect and cruelty
2: absolutely and i think that um you know I've, th- I've thought a lot about your um your 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 book on addiction chasing the screen but also lost connections in terms of you know what we've all been dealing with all kinds of lost connections. Right. Um, but if you, if you think about what, what has gotten us through this, you know, those of us who've been privileged enough to, to lock down um, it's been relationships and it's, it's been connections to one another. Um, and that is something we've missed. Right. I mean, maybe we haven't been missing shopping so much, but we've missed each other a lot. Um, we missed touch a lot um and you know our, our our mutual friend uh v um formerly eve ensler um wrote this beautiful essay uh, uh in the guardian that about touch about uh, about the importance of touch and people um articulating how important that is but also i think the solace so many people took in the natural world. And, and Johan, I know you hate nature. This is something that, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm <laughs> I just don't want to interact with it. <laughs> um, we're working on Johan's relationship with nature, but I, I found it really I moving
1: once when we, uh, we were in Toronto and, uh, we were doing something and, we some were writing,
2: writing the uh, voiceover for "This Changes Everything" for the documentary.
1: Exactly, like some, bird, like in a Disney movie, these birds like appeared at the window, and you were like so entranced. And I was like, "Come on, come on, get back to
2: work!" <laughs> <laughs> bird,
1: flying vermin.
2: <laughs> um. Yes, but you know, <laughs> other than you, Johan, a lot of people. Um, reported taking solace from birdsong that they could hear finally because the volume of traffic was down, Um, you know, or, you know, nurses coming off all night shifts and just stopping and, 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 and spending some time with the flowers that were in bloom in spring, you know, it was one of the kind of most i don't know terrifyingly beautiful parts of 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 being at kind of ground zero of the pandemic in then in the new york area and new jersey um you know the, the 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 worst of it hit at the peak of spring <laughs> so you have this these intense juxtapositions of of just natural beauty and sort of full riot and and then um, just so much grief and so much death um but a lot of people took solace from it. And, and you saw, you know, there was all this shaming of like people crowding onto parks and beaches and trails. And to me, that just means like, we need, we need more access to nature. Everyone should have a right to nature. And, and, you know, we have been um, uh, allowing public parks to be sacrificed to development for many years now. It's been a long time since we really invested in the public park system and um, and, and and what we now know about the virus is these are the safest places that we can be. So if we think about COVID as a kind of a teacher, um, it's telling us something important. We need those connections to the natural world. And, uh, you know, frankly, the safest place kids can be is not in the classroom right now, but, you know, outdoors as much as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, it would have been nice if instead of spending all of our energy, you know, training up teachers to be able to do Google Classroom and Zoom, we had really invested in outdoor education over these past few months and hired lots of, you know, out of work um, young people to be teaching assistants and outdoor education assistants. And basically, you know, if we were running a kind of a public summer camps all year round where kids can have the kind of socialization that they need, um, be outdoors as much as possible, um, connect with each other and connect with the natural world. And maybe we worried a little less about whether, you know, nine-year-olds were falling behind on, you know, some matrix of success and some ladder to nowhere that, you know, whether that, that probably is irrelevant anyway
1: worse than irrelevant, makes them hate learning and hate being taught things. But you know, one of the things it taught me, was just the case you were saying there, is, it's funny, the emotional reality of something that I had been writing about for a long time. So as you know, in the book that I wrote about depression, obviously a part of that book is about loneliness. And I learned a lot about the scientific evidence about loneliness and, and what, it, what it does to people. But it was so fascinating to me when it was a lockdown to suddenly realize, to think again about those studies and the, a lot of the social scientists that I interviewed and think, oh, wow, the huge numbers of people, particularly in the United States, they've been in lockdown most of their lives. Right. 40 percent of Americans agree with the st- U.S. citizens agree with the statement. Nobody knows me well. Yeah. Right. So that what's that like to have you know it's an amazing study that looks at, asks people you know how many close friends do you have that you could turn to in a crisis and when what? they started doing it ages ago the most common answer was five and today the most common answer not the average but the most common answer is none right oh. so for them the emotional reality I thought God, that loneliness I felt in those early days of lockdown I thought what's it like for that to be your life for that to be a society. And I think it's related to what you were saying about COVID in the sense of the deep sickness of individualism and the madness of individualism. We are a social species, right? We survived on the savannas of Africa because we lived in tribes, just like bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. And we are the first humans to ever disband our tribes and tell ourselves mad stories, right? So we've denied our our nature. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. I want to just go on to a different... You know,
2: one of the things that I would just... just, um, that I think is striking is that is that there is that on some level we know this because as things have opened up, uh, there has been this you know po- potting, potting potting up of, of so we're getting a lot of sound off that, um Johan.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I <laughs> <okay>. oh,
2: Sorry. <laughs> You're in trouble. Um yeah, no, I mean we because because we can't survive on our own and because you know the nuclear family is a pretty bad technology, um you know, if we're not going to have schools and if and you know if we're, if we're all on our own, we have been kind of forming these pod formations that are at about the scale that humans have lived for, you know, a, a, a good deal of our evolution. Um, and it, it's when we go well beyond that scale that then we see we see outbreaks, like a Trump rally, for instance. Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> so, speaking of whom, um, so you were one of the first writers to really identify publicly how central reality television was Trump. I always thought it was incredibly revealing that Donald Trump left his own wedding in order to watch it on television. This is a man for whom television is real in a way that what we think of as real life is not.
2: Wait, and, I don't know this story, Johan. Oh, this,
1: this has been reported that he, okay. where, but I can send you the link. The I can dig it out. Yeah. So he, he was at his own wedding to, uh, you. um, what's the second, the one he cheats on, uh, uh, Marla, yeah, her, I think I have double checked yeah. that. But the um, so, you know, you, you talked a lot in 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 knows not enough in ways that have really uh, uh, become clearer in the time since. Um, so we're seeing this now this collision between reality and the reality show. You know, you, you talk in knows not enough about you relate it back to. N- you know your very first book no logo and where you warned that branding was taken over the world and you say that we we are effectively living in Donald Trump's brand now could you talk a bit about about that and how what it tells us about the last year in particular
2: well you know that 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 moment when 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 he returned from Walter Reed by helicopter and and walked up the steps and took off the mask and then went inside Um, he was directing, um, he was directing a campaign commercial, obviously that, that he posted, I think within an hour. Um, but I think it was more than that. I think, I think that moment really revealed that for Trump, the apprentice never ended. Um, it just got a new set and the, and the set was the white house and it's the same cast. It's his kids all around him. Um, and and it is. And, and, and that show was always about a certain kind of power and dominance. And the ultimate expression of that kind of dominance for Trump is the White House. That's the best set you can get. And we know that because the whole reason why he wanted to own Mar-a-Lago is is that he got to tell guests that this was first, um, you know, imagined as a winter as a winter White House Um and he he bought the quote unquote winter White House that which was never used by uh, by any sitting president as a winter White House but Trump got to kind of play act being president um, for a couple of decades before he became president uh, by telling all of his guests that that they were in the winter White House um, and and so yeah I think the we re- I think we made a mistake in thinking that the reality show was ever over. <laughs> um, and he just kind of swallowed the world into the same kind of relationship to reality that a reality show producer manufactures. And so he's always editing reality and creating the moment. He has always been able to dominate reality. Um, and, you know, the question is, has he now is he now facing more raw reality than he is capable of dominating. We don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, he is fighting for his life, um, for his political life, at any rate, and um, and we don't know the answer to that question. Some of the polling would suggest that maybe this sort of avalanche of just raw, painful reality of people of 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 the human uh, um, suffering caused by both COVID and the cruelty of the economic policies, the looting that his administration um, and and Congress has prioritized in this period, the looting for corporations um, to just pillage the public sphere um, and absolutely fail to provide the most basic aid to regular people now, as they've, you know, as Trump has seemingly um, a- a abandoned the, the 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 stimulus plans, um, although he's going back and forth on this. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot. You know, this is not a show for a lot of people. A lot of people are directly impacted by this, right? So I think that the appeal of The Apprentice, which was an escapist fantasy, right? Um, it's 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 it, it it's it's a kind of a numbing. Um, and it's, and it's the appeal of being able to identify with the winners in a winner loser competition week after week. And that's the plot line of every reality show. And it was very, very explicit on The Apprentice. Um, but, but I think we are in a different kind of moment where so many people, so many millions of Americans are facing eviction, job loss, um, death of loved ones, illness, um, illness. And, and Trump bragging that he is a winner um, and that he has dominated this virus and don't let it dominate you, um, that may not sell. It's possible that won't sell. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, your question about, about you know, Trump, you know, what I argued in, in No Is Not Enough is that we can't understand Trump without understanding the logic of branding the that 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 it is in no way similar to the logic of politics the logic of branding does not play by the rules the same rules as 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 politics the logic of branding requires that you be true to your brand not that you be true to anybody else's rules Um, and the problem with trump has always been that he created an entirely immoral brand right his brand identity is being able to get away with it, it's being so rich that you can dominate any situation, you can force your will onto anyone and anything. Um, and if that's your brand, then you can't get caught out for much of anything, except for not really be being in charge. And that's why it was so important for Trump, after after being the thing you can that you can least be in, in within the world of the Trump end, which is weakened right? An illness weakens your body. That's why it was so important for him to stage that scene um, and get it out there immediately. He was frantic about it. The guy could barely breathe. He had to get on that balcony and he had to look strong. He had to embody the Trump brand because that is the source of his power. That's so
1: important what you're saying, because it really helped me to understand Why so many things that our side and people we admire did to oppose Trump didn't work. I thought about that part of the book a lot. So, one of the things we would do would be try to explain to people, well, look, he's done this terribly immoral thing, right? (laughs) But I realized after reading you, it's almost like saying, well, look, I went to Las Vegas and I discovered this terrible immorality, right? we will (laughs) go, well, what we go to Vegas for, right? That, that, That actually you're reinforcing the brand through your critique of it. Is that a fair way of thinking about it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's why he's not really impacted by the tax scandals, for instance. But I yep. do think that in the context of COVID, right, um, where so many Americans are um, know that their loved ones did not receive this kind of health care, by any means that if they got sick, they would not receive anything like the kind of care that Trump received. Um, and I think there's something about the spectacle of finding out that he paid $750 in taxes last year, the year before, nothing many years before that. Um, and then seeing this gold-plated health care that he received entirely at the public expense at a time when so many people are just being thrown to the wolves. I think if the Democrats can't sell that message, gee, like there's something really, really, really amiss. Um, You know, Bernie's been tweeting uh, all day about it um, with very concise messaging. I hope we hear some of that from Kamala Harris tonight in the vice presidential debates. you know, like I said, like reality television is numbing. It's escapism, but we are in a moment where people need real solutions to real problems. Um, and 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 the right messaging, the right kind of campaigning from the Democrats, I think, could make people rightfully enraged by what they're seeing from Donald Trump right now. I'm not sure his brand can survive this in this context. In this context.
1: That's so important. So when I feel really pessimistic, I start to think that we, I don't think this is separable I guess the fancy way of putting it is that we're living through a kind of epistemological breakdown, a breakdown in the nature of the way we perceive reality collectively. Now, I don't want to romanticise how we saw reality before in the wonderful days when Walter Cronkite told everyone what to think. There were a huge amount of people left out of that. You know, I you had to read Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman to see that was a that was a terrible model in many ways. But uh, So I don't want to romanticise that. But this... this um, this disastrous fracturing, this this all of us getting our news through mediums which prioritise rage and abuse and anger and and uh, penalise sane thinking in many ways, mm-hmm. um, I, I really worry that, as you know, I spend a lot of time in kind of you know, away from New York and LA, and you know, in places like well, I'll give you an example in Las Vegas. As you know, I spend a lot of something I'm writing. I've been spending a lot of time the last few years with really poor people in Las Vegas, people who live in tunnels, people who live in trailers. One thing that's really striking and disturbing to me is how many of them are good, admirable people, people you would really like, really admire Donald Trump, and I, and I kind of. And it's been fascinating talking to them saying, well, what, what do you admire about him? Right. And they literally see a different person because they consume media in a different way. They, they see a person that we don't see, right. The, mm-hmm. the, the, degree, the, the degree of the divergence in perception of reality, of course there's always been that to some degree, but it's such an extreme divergence that, and, and of course, some of them believe the QAnon stuff. And in a funny way, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want this to be misunderstood, but I actually find it strangely reassuring that one of the things they admire about him is the QAnon thing. Now, I want to be clear: QAnon is a ludicrous, grotesque lie. It's nonsense. It's it's appalling garbage and vile. But what's interesting to me is they 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 can't look at Donald Trump as he is, and admire him because he's so grotesque and so so obviously immoral. So what they have to do is create a hyper-moral story for him. What The QAnon story essentially, I mean, he, he looks like this, rather like the evangelical story you were saying about, right. you know, how the Lord sends a flawed messenger. He looks like this grotesque, immoral person, but actually... He's hyper-moral. He's the most moral. He's saving these children from dungeons. How can you not support mm-hmm. that? I really worry about that 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 deep divergence in reality. And those things are only, as you know, you've been a big champion, rightly, of Shoshana Zubov's brilliant book, Surveillance Capitalism. Those mechanisms are only going to become more sophisticated unless we regulate them in re- or, mm-hmm. or take that model away, right? Can you talk yeah. a bit about that? What do you think as I say that?
2: Yeah, I mean... This is I mean maybe another thing thinking about COVID as if we if you go with me on the on the COVID as 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 unveiler as teacher um, you know one of the things that I think we have learned is that is that connectivity you know digital access is an essential service and we need to govern it as a commons we cannot leave it um, to these um, predatory players whose business model was to actually give us the illusion of a commons, right? So like for the first few years, this is why it's sort of interesting. I was thinking about Trump, you know, he gets talked about as an outlier, as a businessman, um, you know, there's been all of this um, sort of finger waving about, well, you know, he wasn't even a profitable businessman. Like, you know, his businesses were losing money and, and, um, and, and, you know, it wasn't until The Apprentice came along that he started making money um, and all of that's true. But it's also true of a lot of companies in Silicon Valley where they really didn't have a business model except building their brand, just like Donald Trump, um, for a very long time. Um, you know, Facebook for a long time was just offering people an entirely free service, which it was marketing as a digital town square. Right, using that discourse of the commons of a place of a public sphere where we would all meet and talk mm-hmm. and uh, you know, but uh, connect with our friends and family, and it would be um, it would it, it would serve the role that a pu- public space used to play. Um, you know, same with Twitter, there was no business model for a really long time. Same with Google for a really long time. So this is bit this is a very particular kind of industry where you have um, it, it very very deep pocketed venture capitalists that just say to these companies, just grow, just dominate, dominate the sphere, right? Whether it's Uber, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, um, just become completely dominant and make sure you're the only game in town. You don't need to have any way of making money. And in, and, and and so people get used to the idea that actually they have a right to information, um, and uh, and they volunteer their labor for these organizations and are and provide all kinds of free content, as we all do. Um, and then the business model turns out to be selling our data and predicting our behaviors. Right. But the entire thing was fraudulent. The entire thing was untransparent. The and the entire discourse. And this is where it's interesting um was actually selling us the idea of a digital town square, of a a digital commons. And so I think, yeah, I think we need to say, actually, we do need a digital commons and we need for it to be governed as a commons. Um, And we need not to have our data mined and our behavior predicted. uh, And we need not to be manipulated in all of these utterly insidious ways that have completely poisoned our information ecology.
1: One of the parts of no is not enough that really... Haunted me and, and affected my behavior in quite a lot of ways. Was where you talk about the, you talk about Trump as a product of all sorts of trends. But you, you talk about how those trends are acting on us now. Trump isn't a very extreme version, of course. Mm-hmm. But you talk about you know kill your inner Trump, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that and I've seen this with. I'm thinking earlier today. I won't say who, but someone that you and I both know and like, and who is who's an admirable person. And I looked at this individual's Twitter feed and it was just, and I don't hold myself above this because there's plenty of times in my life I've been like that, just kind of horrible, aggressive bile and self-display and kind of a mixture of kind of aggression and narcissism oh. and moral superiority. And all sorts of, And I just, and I can, and I feel that happening to me when I'm oh. in those, you know, it's one of the reasons why I take such long breaks and I beg you to take them. And I'm so glad that some of you did, although you don't, you never become like, that because that's you're too far the other end of the spectrum to...
2: Well, uh, I kind of did around Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, I mean, I, I didn't tweet any snake emojis, but I may have come close. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, that, that inner Trump, um,
1: can you talk to me a bit about that? What we can do about that happening to... that? These forces corroding the personalities of all of us, incentivizing us all to be the worst versions of ourselves.
2: Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I, when I was writing, no, is not enough. Um, I, I was trying to look at Trump as the, as, as not a shock, right. Because everybody was sort of, there was so much talk about how could this have happened? And and this is such a rupture. And, and, and in fact, he, he really is not a rupture. He is a logical conclusion of, um, of so many trends in our culture. Um, and, you know, my argument was we should see Trump as the way we should metabolize him the way you would metabolize dystopian fiction, right? That it's a mirror being held up to society going like, (laughs) this is gross. Don't go this way. This is where it's all leading. Um, and and, and, and yeah, so I had that passage at the end of, uh, of it about, about how we need to kill our inner Trump and sort of, uh, that, that part of us that is constantly posturing and attacking and, um, and building our own brand. And, you know, and this is sort of the limits of, uh, of, of, of that film, the social dilemma that a lot of people are, see- are, are talking about, and I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I know you're doing a lot of research in this area. And and there's a lot of really good things in that film, but I think the limits of it are that it only looks at our relationship with these technologies through the lens of addiction, right? That is just like, oh, you know, these Silicon Valley guys are just so smart, and they're using all of these fancy technologies that they're borrowing from Las Vegas, and we're getting our dopamine hits, and we just can't put our phones down. And what they're not reckoning with is the broader um, ecology of Late capitalism, where we are in such a state of anxiety and precarity and isolation uh, that we are terrified of being of falling behind. Nobody's offered jobs, everybody's offered gigs, everybody's having to hustle. So we have these tools that are the hustle tools that are the, that are the self promotion tools but we're not just self promoting because we're addicted to being to self promotion or because you know these 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 algorithms are encouraging a certain kind of antisocial behavior we're also doing it because because it's you know for a lot of young people becoming an influencer seems to be the most viable way of making a living, you know, Um, there doesn't seem to be, there don't seem to be that many paths. Um, And there's a fear that if you don't perform yourself in a certain way that you'll never get a job because every employer is checking out your social media feeds to see how you're presenting to the world. And they've been told since they were 10 years old that they should be their own brand and they need to think about their brand and how they're presenting to the world. So, To me, it's really culpable to talk about it through this narrow addiction lens and not looking at why it is that we need these tools as badly or perceive ourselves to need these tools as badly as we do.
1: I think that's really important. I've deliberately not watched The Social Dilemma because, as you know, I've I've almost finished a book about why we're having such um, problems focusing and paying attention. And I've interviewed some of the central people in The Social Dilemma like Tristan Harris. And I want to be able to honestly say I wasn't influenced by the film, so I'm not.
2: You don't don't need to worry about it.
1: I've slightly cheating
2: because I got you to summarize it. <laughs> but but I showed it to my students this week and they're all of them said, you know, the the, the, the the most common response was um that these guys were really letting themselves off the hook way too easily. Um and and that they you know that, that that this sort of Narrative of naivete, like we just didn't know, you know, we had no idea, um, was was uh, just a really convenient one because obviously there are all kinds of financial incentives to to not know. I
1: think you you, you, Tristan Harris, who's the one that I know best from my understanding of who's in the film. I mean, Tristan is sincerely agonised, but I think you're right that the the and to be fair to Tristan, he he also has a critique of the addiction lens strongly. And, and I did a podcast with him, and people can hear that if they want to. But the the it, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's rather like what people get wrong about the opioid crisis. They focus on the drug. Now, the drug has a real effect, which can be very negative, can be yeah. positive, can be very negative. That's very real, right? But the vast majority of people who use opioid-based painkillers, in fact, the vast majority of people who use street heroin, do not become addicted, right? What, what, why do some people get addicted and not others? Well, because they're trying to anaesthetise very deep pain. You know, if you want to understand why people use painkillers, you've got to understand the pain. And in the same way, these these, these devices driven by these tracking and tracking technologies that are designed to manipulate our behaviour, they arrive in a society that's already devastated socially, right? Collapse of the middle class, um, unbelievably lonely after a kind of uh, tsunami of neoliberalism uh, and junk values. You, you, so you, you, I think you're absolutely right. You can't separate out these things, but I want to just come to a slightly different uh, thing, which I really want to hear your thoughts on. So. No is not enough is obviously has that title because you are arguing very powerfully that um, it's not enough to say no to Donald Trump. Right. If if our side, everyone to the left of Trump is simply saying, no, he's bad, which is essentially what the Hillary Clinton campaign was, we will lose. Right. Um, So you then became a key part of the most substantial yes that has been offered to the American people. Since the New Deal, or arguably ever in the history of the Republic, which was the, the Bernie campaign. And I'm really fascinated. You were very closely involved. I don't know how much, come to where I'm talking about how involved you were, but I mean, I saw up close you were, you know, really deeply involved. I also loved your barnstorming incarnation where you would introduce them. I love barnstorming Naomi. I wanted to come back more. <laughs> it was
2: a whole new thing for me. Good um,
1: I'm fascinated by what you learned positively and negatively from that experience of that that, that campaign.
2: Um, well, I mean, I consider, I considered the campaign to have been really a, a political highlight of my life. Um, I, 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 you know, spent some 25 years active in, in progressive politics and left politics, both as a writer, but as a very engaged, you know, activist journalist. And I think what was really so such, such, such a highlight was just seeing movements come together, um, and and Bernie the Bernie campaign provided this really um, ample umbrella, uh, this big tent, right? Um, so you know that you had groups like Sunrise and the Dream Defenders and unions like National Nurses United and um, you who've know, been arguing for Medicare for All for so long um, uh, um, you know, different, uh, many different migrant rights groups, um, and people really coming together to, um, to, to, to develop a common agenda. Um, and, and, and those relationships are outliving the campaign in lots of ways, but unfortunately I think the way, and this is a broader conversation about, you know, the kind of Rise of the NGO, of the nonprofit, as opposed to a broad based social movement, broad based social movements of the kind that you see in the global south where, you know, you will have big um, uh, progressive big uh, um, umbrella movements that have, you know, women's groups within them, uh, farmers groups within them, you know, like teachers unions and so on. And, and they provide that sort of movement infrastructure where people are able to come together. We really haven't had that in North America for a really long time. And so the burning campaign provided that tent and a lot of people came into it and found common ground. And we're still seeing relationships evolve, but we don't have that kind of glue, the glue of the burning campaign. But you know, you know, you know, what I said when I was on the campaign trail, I still believe, which is the most important thing, the greatest gift that Bernie gave us was that we discovered that we were so, so many more than we had been told, right? Um, And that so many of us had internalized the kind of marginalization story of the neoliberal period where we were told that, we and because of, and this is where we can say kind of something nice about social media, and after all of that, right? (laughs) Is that I think that the, the, the hegemony of 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 television and 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 the and the and the op-ed page was such that you really could have the sense for a couple of decades that if you disagreed with the dominant neoliberal narrative you were a bit of a freak and everybody else was sort of within the, the this very narrow centrist mainstream um and 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 I think the combination of Bernie's campaign and really savvy use of social media meant that we discovered that we'd been lied to. That actually there was a progressive majority out there, um, or something close to a majority. And um, and so that's something that we like. I I still believe that 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 it was possible for that coalition or an even broader coalition to have won and if we didn't win we need to be self critical about why we didn't win um, and there were mistakes there were absolutely significant mistakes made by the campaign um, uh, it, uh, um And, and, you know, in particular in missteps in reaching out to African-American voters and, um, and there were Bernie's advisors and surrogates like Barbara Ransby and Barbara Smith, who were, you know, calling out and, 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 and trying to prevent these mistakes from being made. And they happened anyway, um, but I think there were also mistakes that made by other campaigns. Like, I still think Elizabeth Warren really should have endorsed Bernie Sanders when the center coalesced around uh, around Biden. Here's where I'm at, though. Um, and sorry, I think that the light is hitting me probably in a way that's rather distracting.
1: It's like a divine and angelic glow. that I think, I
2: don't know like, what to do about it. Jeez, God. Um, it's a nightmare. Go um, I could lower this blind for a second, um, uh, but I'm afraid what will happen if I get up. OK, um, you know, when I was on the, when I was in Las Vegas, um, I, I met I met a lot of voters who told me that they agreed with Bernie on policies, but they thought he was too high risk, that they were supporting Biden because they felt the stakes this election were so high that it was so important to get rid of Donald Trump because he is so intensely dangerous um that 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 it just felt too risky to back a self-described democratic socialist. I heard this from a lot of older African American voters. And I have you know I have to say that they I that they may have be right <laughs> that that you know I what I what I always said is that all the candidates are risky, that there is no safe bet against Trump, um, that Biden has his baggage, and it's very similar to the baggage that Hillary had, and that sometimes what seems safe is actually dangerous. I mean, Hillary was positioned as the safe bet against Trump, and she didn't beat him. Um, But you'd have to be, you, 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 You would have to truly not understand American history to believe that Bernie was a safe candidate. What we believed is that Bernie had a chance. What we believed is that Bernie had a chance. We believed that there were Trump voters that would go to Bernie. We believed that Bernie could energize non-voters, that he could galvanize youth voters. But absolutely, in the United States with a deep, deep history of red baiting, of McCarthyism, There is no doubt that Bernie was a high risk candidate. The argument that I made on the trail was they're all risky. Let's make a risk reward calculation here. (laughs) Bernie is risky, but the reward is Medicare for all is free college tuition and a Green New Deal. Biden has his risks, but, you know, we're going to have to push him so hard to get anything like those policies. But I have to accept the fact that everybody was making calculations, um, with the best of intentions, and that those older voters who I met in Las Vegas, they may well have been right. Biden is doing very well in the polls. A lot of people see him as a safe choice, and so at this point, um, you know, I think that 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 he is the candidate that 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 is the our only chance of getting rid of a white supremacist wannabe dictator. And um, you know, I absolutely agree with Bernie that this is not a race between Biden and Trump, it is a race between Trump and democracy. Um, I think that if Bernie had won the primaries and lost the election to Trump, the left would have been dead for 50 years in the United States. As it is, I believe that we need to rally behind the democratic ticket, get rid of Trump and then we need to make Biden's life a living hell and push for the things we actually need. You know, it and so that's where I'm at with it. Um, And yeah,
1: I remember speaking to you the day Bernie won Nevada and Mm -hmm. you were in Vegas. And I've never heard you happier in all the time I've known you. Don't remind me. It's hard now. I found it. Look, it was hard to watch the debate. Johan Trump
2: I'm and just going to deal with this with this light for one second. Sure, sure, sure. So you, I'm I hear you so keep talking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know it was hard to watch the debate between Trump and Biden for all sorts of reasons right but it was hard not to think oh, if Bernie had been there or I mean yeah, I mean, that's a very... I mean, it was fascinating as well that Vegas was this place that, that Bernie won so definitively as well because obviously I've spent so much time in Vegas now. And it's interesting because Vegas has this fascinating history of union organizing, right? Vegas is one of the last places where, you know, if you work at Caesars, you know, and you're an ordinary member of staff at Caesars, you get health insurance, right? But actually, it's a powerful demonstration of the power of union organizing. So it's a weird thing. Vegas is both the epitome of junk values and the deepest challenge to it in the in the United States. I, I, we're getting some questions from um, uh, people in the world listening to us. Goodness. Um, Goodness. They were there. So I want to start with asking one about, uh, so this is a question from, uh, sorry, I'm getting them texted to me by Anthony Arnaud. Um, so there's quite a lot of people asking, what do we do if Trump, as I think it's reasonable to infer he will, if Trump tries to effectively stage a coup, prevent the votes being counted or in other ways tries to stage a coup. You know, you wrote a lot about this. The shock doctrine obviously is a large part. i think a lot about what you've been writing about Chile. And um, a large part of that is how we resist these these, these coups. So what, what do we do?
2: <laughs> how do we resist coups? Um, well, that is a very important question. Um, and I think the most important thing that we need to... To learn from is um, you know places that have have repelled coups in the past, and you know I often tell the story of um, being in Argentina in in, in, uh, in the midst of the economic crisis that began in two thousand um, uh, uh, and one and uh, in January two thousand one, um, and um, so there was, there was a moment and, and Argentina, um, like many Latin American countries, uh, suffered under a absolutely brutal military dictatorship, uh, that came to power in 1976. <clears throat> um, and 30,000 people were disappeared. Um, you know, many thrown from helicopters, um, absolutely brutal war on the left. <clears throat> and. Um, when that military coup happened, it it, 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 happened in the name of restoring order and security. It happened during a time of upheaval, large protests. Um, uh, there was, uh, left-wing, um, you know, armed groups. Um, uh, and, and this, the pre- the pretext for the coup was restoring order. And, you know, when I was when we were living in Argentina, we heard from a lot of people um, about the the guilt and regret about having actually welcomed the coup when it first came, because mm-hmm. things were, really were chaotic. Um, and 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 the idea of a kind of a strong, strong man taking power, you know, these the, the, the there was trust in the military still at that time. Um that that a lot of people who were not like far right fanatics actually said, you know, this is good, a good idea. They're just going to be there for a little while. Um, they'll restore order, and um, and 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 it will and and it will be okay. And of course, it was not okay. And they did not leave. Um, and they terrorized the population. And so fast forward to um, the economic crisis in two thousand and one, <clears throat> uh, there was a moment. Where um, you know after after the financial crisis hit, people were locked out of their bank accounts. Um, currency was radically devalued. There was looting um, in this in the big supermarkets around Buenos Aires. Um, it was chaotic. It was chaotic. Um, and Fernando de la Rua, um, who was the president at the time, went on television and he said that. Um, that he was declaring a state of siege um, and that people had to stay in their homes and that he was gonna bring in the forces and he was gonna restore order to the streets um, because of the looting, because of the chaos, because of these huge demonstrations. And as he was speaking, um, you stopped being able to hear him tell people to stay in their homes because the sounds of pots and pans from the streets were so loud that they drowned out the television sets. So Argentinians, literally, they heard heard this phrase, state of siege, they heard these keywords, security, order. um, And they grabbed their pots and pans and they went out on the streets and they defied the curfew. And they said, we are not gonna do this again because they had a memory, they had a collective memory of how they had lost their freedom before. And they said, we're not going to do it again. And that was the end of Fernando de la Rua. And that was the beginning of cycling through those three presidents in a period of of three or five presidents in a period of three weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think we need to learn from parts of the world where these coups did happen, almost invariably backed by the United States and covert ops and CIA interference, including in Argentina, Uruguay. Our, uh, Brazil, Chile, um, and so because there was that memory, people knew what to do, and what what the thing to do was to disobey, was to disobey in that moment. Because once once you buy the rationale, maybe it's just for a little while. We'll see what happens. Maybe it's a good idea. The military seems okay. Whatever it is, once they get a foothold, that's when it's all. That's when it's lost. Um, I'm not saying that it's always possible to repel these forces. And, you know, we are talking about very, very heavily armed agents, but what I can say actors, but what I can say is that the only thing that I have seen in studying these states of shock and and attempts to repel them, you know, over a couple of decades is the only thing that has ever stopped it is massive, massive disobedience, um, in the moment when they're trying to seize power. Um, And so it can't just be a few brave people with lots of people tweeting at home. It's literally got to be everybody out of the house, you know, bring your mask, because we've never tried to do this in a pandemic. Um, But, you know, it may come to that. And all we can do is learn from the people who've done it.
1: So that's what we do if we get to the point that Trump is. Uh, trying to obstruct the election results.
2: But obviously what we try to do is, 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 is make, you know, this is where I think the Democrats are right, that, that, um, that, the, the, that the more decisive a victory it is, that the more overwhelming the victory it is, the less, the more difficult it is to contest it, you know, through a stacked court or, you know, or some kind of te- technical means, um, you know, the stronger people's hands are going to be.
1: So lots of people are saying, what should we be doing in the period leading up to the election? So what would you most recommend people at home watching do?
2: You know, phone bank, um, you know, get involved in down ballot races, get involved in Senate races, get make make sure that your your friends and family are registered to vote. Um, uh, at, and there's lots of, of great groups that are doing this work. Um, you know, look, you, you know, just hook in with one of the groups whose values are aligned with yours and, and and do that work. And, you know, I know that there are folks in the Bernie campaign who just feel so betrayed, um, by the way things went down. And, you know, I, I do too. I think that there, that, that the way the party coalesced around Biden, um, you know, was, was really underhanded and, and, um, it, I, but I think we have to keep our eye on the prize here, you know, I think, and, and we, you know, we, the, the, something else I learned in Argentina, um, There was a phrase um, that the social movements used in the first national elections after the uprising, which was our dreams don't fit on your ballots. Um, And that's that's true. You know what we not just our dreams, but what we need, what we need to survive. Um, All of the lessons that we've been talking about, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about the movement for black lives, um, you know, whether it's about defunding the police, none of it's on the ballot. Right. But that doesn't mean we get to sit this out. Um, you know, we, we 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 have to vote for the conditions where our dreams have a chance, um, where the planet has a chance, where working people have a chance. It is so important to remember, you know, the FDR didn't deliver the the New Deal um, you know, and and I don't want to romanticize the New Deal because there were many people who were left out and discriminated against inside New Deal programs. But it did bring social security, it did bring unemployment insurance, it did break up the banks, it did they'll create 800 state parks, and employ millions upon millions of people, including artists and young people. And the fact is, FDR didn't run on that ambitious program. He ran on a, ran on a few pieces of it, but. During his first term in office, there was such a high level of, 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 of organization, of unionization, of disruption. In 1933, 34, 35, 36, 37, every year there were more strikes than the year before. Um, sit down strikes, general strikes, closing down ports. Um, and, and, and every year the New Deal got broader and more ambitious. And so that's the dynamic. That we that that we need to hope for. FDR was not a socialist. What FDR was was terrified of the socialists. Um, so you know, Alicia Garza uh, a couple of years back talked about how we are not voting for a candidate. We're voting we're voting for the terrain on which to fight. Um, and I think about that a lot. I think that that's exactly right. That we need to vote for the terrain on which to fight. Um, but you know, this is not a kind of a um, this shouldn't be a tough call. Um, we have to get rid of Trump
1: right now. That seems like such a good point to end on. It reminds me of when, uh, years ago, Amy Goodman was interviewing Robert Fisk, um, the British uh, war correspondent uh, who I used to work with, in fact. And At the end, Amy said to him, um, uh, Robert – I can't do her voice – but Robert Fisk, what what gives you hope? Robert Fisk said, hope? I don't have hope. And that was very much the difference with British response. and so what you've just done is the perfect, rousing oh. North American, and absolutely right, uh, and, and so important. And I would just say to everyone listening, in addition to all the fighting that we're going to have to do over the next the period leading up to the election, and I fear the period after the election, um, this is a great time to... Um, This is a great time to read. No, it's not enough. It was really happy. It's a great time to read. On fire, you know. These are incredibly prescient books. They've shaped so much of my understanding of the world. And once you've read these books and Naomi's other work, um, you can see the world differently. It's. It's. I always think of Naomi as like an incredible maker of maps. You then understand where you are in relation to the rest of the territory. And until you have an accurate map, you can't find your way out of wherever you're stuck. Um, So. Please get those books. Hooray for Naomi! Thank you so much, Johan. Thank you to Haymarket. I just say the last very last thing I have to say is that um, on Tuesday, October 13th, Astra Taylor is talking to Angela Davis. I want to watch that. And on Wednesday, the 14th, Naomi's amazing husband, Arvy Lewis, will be talking about Leap and their new video, "Messages from the Future," on whatever feed you watch this on. And we didn't get to do our Kamala Harris, Mike Pence impersonations. We could have done through, but I'm going to go and watch them now and uh goodbye from turkey thank you, See
2: you bye, bye. bye thanks you for watching. Well. thank bye. you and thank you Lindsay, for the captioning yes hooray and to john the technician hooray yeah, thank me. you so much
0: bye thanks for listening if you liked this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org